0: Card-carrying basing at this point. Ben
1: Alamar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, just to next to Big would be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal, and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
2: This is Wharton Moneyball's post-game podcast.
1: Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time until 10 a.m. I'm your host of the post-game podcast, Professor Adi Weiner, and I am a co-host and collaborator with my colleagues at the Wharton School on our weekly show. And this week, our show included my colleagues Cade Massey, who uh, was in the driver's seat this week, and Shane Jensen, And we had a couple of very interesting guests we brought into the studio, Brendan Harris, who is a former MLB player for the Rays, the Twins and the Angels. And he currently serves in the front office for the Los Angeles Angels. And he's enrolled in the MBA program for executives here at the Wharton School. So it's great to have Brendan Harris around the neighborhood and in our studio. And our second guest was John Carter, who is the CEO and the founder of NOAA Basketball, which this is, John's company is a really audacious and adventurous new technology that is useful for improving your basketball shooting accuracy, and I really enjoyed the interview with John Carter. And we'll have some terrific highlights and clips from that interview. So our first clip is actually a non-guest clip. It's a discussion of a topic very near and dear to my own heart and my own research, which is on strike zones and pitch ambiguity. Let's go to the clip.
0: The frequency of observed strikes is very different. Yeah. In 3 versus 0-2. So they've got this prior, if you think of it in Bayesian terms, they've mm-hmm. got this prior that it's going to be a better pitch in 3-0 2 So even, even,
3: even if the pitch is kind of marginal, they're more likely to shrink it towards That's the right. plate That's if right. it's 3 so The
0: marginal bit is the key yeah. bit here, because there's no ambiguity if a pitch is straight down the middle or if it's way outside. Those pitches are clearly strikes and yeah. balls. But there is ambiguity when it's on the margin, right on yep. the edge of the, of the strike zone. And so... You know they don't observe these things perfectly, so they basically get a noisy signal.
3: But it's a biased noisy signal.
0: A, it, it's a, no. The, well, it's the a, signal may be unbiased, but it has to be integrated with his yeah. expectation in yeah. a Bayesian way, and that leads to the UMPs calling a much tighter strike zone in zero and two than on th- on three and zero. than on 0 and two. So, well, they
1: also give a. They also get much more likely to call a strike in two and zero count. Yeah, no, you walk it you walk works, it you walk it I linearly actually.
0: That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. And he and he maps he's a bunch of very cool analysis, but the zone, you know, he, he talks about the the basically the square footage or the square this the size of the zone, how different
1: it is mm-hmm. in 3 and 0 versus 0 and 2. Yeah, so I've actually been looking at that same phenomenon not not from the perspective of umpire biases, but more from the perspective of just forecasting. Just plain old Conditioned on where the ball was thrown, what is the probability that that's going to be called a strike? Yeah, and all the factors that go into that include the catcher, the catcher's ability to frame the pitch, the pitcher's reputation if you will or mm-hmm. whatever it is that you the think count the count obviously has a role now c- count. I think
0: what he's showing is that there are these other factors but the count is like significantly larger well the, the count is the
1: biggest factor yeah the handedness matchup of the pitcher is actually very very important because the strike zone shifts substantially yeah. depending yeah. on the cross handedness yep. of, right. of the catcher because the ball moves in directions yeah. and the catcher and the way the catcher sets up compared to the batter and where the batter stands that actually makes a big impact on what the umpire really sees yeah. so you have to what you first step to doing this is giving a, a count neutral, batter neutral, catcher, you know, just take the, the external variables and then and, and given where the pitch is, what's that probability? Yeah. And then you see how it gets adjusted. Okay, so the discussion began by talking about Eitan Green's new paper, which is almost a psychological way of understanding how umpires make decisions, and the premise began, the discussion began by thinking about a pitch that's thrown right on the border, and the umpire has to kind of make a decision, and so the umpire knows that when the count is 3 know, oh, he's much more likely to throw the ball over the plate, and when the count is 0-2, oh, he's more likely to throw it at the edges or not over the plate, and he kind of adjusts, or what, what Chang called he shrinks his estimate towards that prior information, and that means that he's more likely to call a strike on a 3-0 count and much more likely to call a ball in an 0-2 count, and that is well studied and observed in the actual data which is uh, generated by PitchFX which shows you exactly where the ball is thrown. I then segued into my own work which is trying to really improve the forecasting and in particular to attribute precise values to what's called the catcher framing effect. The framing effect is the ability of a catcher to influence the umpire's decision, and for most catchers they have a limited ability to do that some are terrible at it that is they almost get in the way of of the call they move so much that a ball that's even over the plate appears to be outside the plate and so they lose strikes but other catchers in particularly um, Buster Posey I believe is the best historically at this in the recent era where we actually have data and he's sort of able to fool the, the umpire into thinking when a pitch is thrown at the edges that it's that it's more likely to actually hit the strike zone than uh, other catchers and that's actually a a considerable amount of value Um, up to 15 20 runs over the course of a season which translates out into a couple wins and a dollar value of five to eight million dollars per win that's 15 million dollars or so that's due to those terrific catchers of course and cost to the ones who don't do it well so that's a really interesting application of statistics to player valuation to understanding of the game of baseball so let's go into our next clip which is Brendan Harris as I mentioned earlier he's a former MLB player for the Rays the Twins and the Angels he was a shortstop and he's now uh, an executive for the Los Angeles Angels and he's enrolled in our MBA program for executives and here he is talking a little bit about spring training
2: there's two separate spring trainings going on. You have the ones that are that know they're going to make the team. Then you got have the guys on the bubble, and they are polar opposites. And I've been mm. in both. And I've uh, been in both situations. Certainly, you get to this point in spring training, guys that know they're going to make the team. I'll address them first. They are kind of polishing, fine tuning, uh, maybe some mechanical adjustments they made at the play They want to take into the season. They're playing just hard enough so that they can get their timing, their rhythm at the play, their innings. And then also not get hurt, mm-hmm. and then they have some logistical things. Hey, I'm, I'm putting my bad order in with the uh, equipment guys. I'm making my orders from uh, uh, New Balance, making sure my 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 show well, cleats, these are, these are good, show cleats good are ready, problems to have. Right? M- making my you know my car shift, my my apartment ready, right? You know everything in the new city. The guy in the bubble, it's the Super Bowl every day, and it's unreasonably stressful. Okay, and so this is where management comes in, and, and a good manager to, to kind of communicate, let you know kind of the state of the union as much as he can, but every day is, is, is supremely stressful. And then the irony of it is inevitably you're going to be a bench player. You're going to be a bullpen guy fighting for that last spot. Yeah. So your opportunities are going to be pretty limited. Get into that last week right. of the season because all the starters are going to need all the, all the, uh, the reps. So you're putting on an undue amount of stress on yourself for these, I'm you know, one, 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 that, one at bat a that. day, a oh couple God. innings in the field, you know, you're hypersensitive to to gossip going around the clubhouse. There's always a vet that kind of has a streamline to, you know, some of the coaches. What's going yeah, on? Yeah. You're kind of eavesdropping on some of the beat writers, and and oh, so it's, so. Oh, it's, it sounds, it's sounds just intense. It's, and it's and it lasts for a week and it seems like a month.
1: Well. That certainly is the tribulations and turmoil of a player on the bubble, someone who doesn't know whether they have the job or not, and their limited opportunity to play in spring training as it winds down makes for a very intense couple of weeks. So let's go to the next clip with Brendan Harris, which is a discussion of some of the nuances of baseball that are being uncovered and redefined and changed by our knowledge of the game as acquired through advanced analytics. In particular, we'll be talking about the change in the way batters are swinging at baseballs.
2: One of the things I mentioned last time was uh, exit velocity, and so Mm -hmm. one. What we're doing, kind of as an organization, we're going from more outcome-oriented analysis to a process-oriented analysis. Right. right? So this is something that we can do to kind of analyze and isolate. So so
0: just to be clear, outcome would be home run or hit, and process would be exit velocity. For example, angle.
2: Well, right. Those two. Yes, Mm -hmm. but in in in, outcome-oriented is just saying, oh, this guy hits a lot of doubles. He's probably going to hit a lot of home runs. Yeah. Process oriented is how how is his swing plane yep. and how does that affect his exit velocity? Exit velocity is exit launch angle got and it. all those things. Okay. So now what we're seeing is it kind of goes against conventional wisdom that a lot of things that we were taught as we were younger is that the flatter swings and even the uh, swings with a little bit of an uppercut are giving us the higher exit velocity. Is that right? Yeah. And so at, and and so it's interesting. It's been taught for years. Oh, you got to hit down on the ball, hit down on the ball, you can generate backspin, then you're going to get carry. Now we're seeing the flatter swings wow. and the uppercut swings are generating higher exit velocity. And obviously with higher exit velocity, go for hits more often, wow. specifically doubles and home runs. So
0: you're saying that – so this we've we've all been kind of enamored of exit velocity because it is a single number. It's so intuitively related to these things. And then it turns out – l- it sounds like it's actually objectively related to them. So it's this great new measure. And you're saying that because we have this new measure, we, we are – Redefining the optimal swing. Are
2: there historical figures
0: that now we know they had an advantage because their Ted natural swing was also a big cut. one? Yeah. Really? Yeah, a
2: huge one. And now, but with the Trapman upper, he was a little bit more flat uh, yeah. in his swing. But y- now w- you have quantitative. You have you can have hey, this exit velocity is this, this launch angle is this, yeah. and look at the results, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so you have that. And the second aspect involved in, in certainly with that is is the element of torque. And so when we do have these small sample sizes, you can look at these guys and you can break down their swing and you can project how are they gonna play even if you have a small sample size. So uh, another yeah, thing okay. of conventional wisdom is, is used to be, hey, the hands come first, that front foot is down, hands come through, then the hips come through. Now what we're seeing, we're seeing higher exit velocities when the hips come first, hmm. when that front foot lands at about a 45 degree angle, then the hands come through and we're seeing much higher it exit velocities. sounds like velocities. a golf swing actually. The hips, a lot hips of it is, is similar.
1: Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. What uh, Brandon is telling us is that the exit velocity data is showing that, and the high-speed cameras are showing the observers of baseball, the uppercuts are more powerful, they drive the ball, they're more likely to hit the ball harder, and that goes in contrast to conventional wisdom, which encourages players to swing flat or even down. And there are some physical reasons for it, but this is now being confirmed and he re- referenced the great Ted Williams, possibly and likely considered the best hitter who ever lived. And he swung with a 45 degree angle, an uppercut. And he also talked about how the hips come first, not the hands, the hips. And that gives that great power. And, um, some of these, uh, observations are really remaking the way the game is, is played and, and and is likely in some measure to be an explanatory factor for why hitting is up, strikeouts are up, but they're just the byproduct of swinging in an upward fashion. I think that's, you hit the ball harder when you hit it, but when you miss it, you miss it slightly more often. That's my conjecture. So let's go on to uh, our fourth clip, which, which is uh, part of an interview we had with John Carter, who I mentioned earlier was the CEO and founder of NOAA Basketball. We still don't know what Noah stands for. If it refers to the Noah of the Ark fame, we haven't quite gotten that right. But he actually talks at length about the Ark, and maybe that's where the term Noah comes from. But he means Ark as an A R C, the ARC of the Ball technology, which allows the shooter. To observe in real time immediate feedback on what the angle of their ball is as it hits the basket and where in the basket it hits and whether it is angled to the right or to the left and this immediate feedback allows you to become a better shooter and use your practice time for the most rapid growth and return so let's go to the clip
3: Arc is something people think about. Sure. You know, I've been barnstorming Jim for 12 years, testing some of the best shooters in the world. That's okay. how we got started was okay. um, was really, you know, what does a Chris Mullen shoot, uh, you know, for example. Yeah, right. and, uh, and what we found is almost all of these great shooters are shooting the ball right at 45 degrees. Really? So that was kind of hint number one. And then as we went around and we, you know, we've got our prototype system, we're measuring players. And we also found that all the great shooters shoot the ball deep in the basket. Okay. Um, you know, for example, they don't shoot the ball in the middle. Right. And we can talk about that as we go on as well. So we, we looked at that. Then we actually spent uh, uh, some time building some models and things like that. We worked with Dr. Larry Silverberg at Instant State, uh, John, one John of our can, founders.
0: John, can I hold John for just one second? On sure. those On those two elements, so arc, like launch angle kind of thing, and depth, what kind of variation are you really talking about? Because the, the depth, it strikes me you're probably emphasizing a difference of uh, like an an know, inch. two inches or yeah. something. Is that right?
3: Uh, well, let me explain that. First off, we do not measure launch angle; we measure entry angle. Okay. Uh, launch okay. angle varies depending on the height of the player. Okay. Uh, the optimal launch angle varies depending on the height of the player because you know you take a five foot girl versus a seven foot guy, quite a bit of difference between the rim height and the actual release height. Okay. So we're measuring entry angle, and so what we found is the best shooters. I mean, I, I remember uh, Chris Mullin shooting a session, and I think he was between forty-three and forty-six degrees. Uh, so no player can shoot exactly the same arc every right. time.
1: Well, so here he had a discussion talking about what is the optimal entry angle for a ball thrown into the basket, and it's 45 degrees. So you don't want to shoot it too high or too low, but 45 degrees and also deep in the basket. That means that you have to, you want to try to hit the back of the rim um, and not kind of hit right in the middle. You want to aim not to the middle of the basket, but towards the back of the basket. And what his technology does is measure that precisely and give you instant feedback. So let's go to our, our last clip from John Carter, which he talks about the value of instant feedback. Talk to us about this. Tell us about the instant feedback.
3: Yeah, so there's you know if you go back and look at you know what makes feedback really work for a player, number one, it's got to be accurate. And trust me, what we're doing is really accurate. Sure. Uh, it also has to be immediate. Right. Uh, you know, there's been some studies around you know giving a player feedback on something even a few seconds later is not good. It's got to be immediate.
0: And oh, oh, so, oh, really? So that's 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 taking it pretty extreme. Okay, fine. Yeah, you can so, do that so here.
3: Literally, when the ball gets to the rim, uh, when the shot's over, we're going to say. In the case of entry angle, it might say 45. In the case of shot depth, it might say 11, 12, 13. Because here's the thing. If the shot swishes, uh, nothing but net shot, that may actually happen at 7 inches. It's and too the short. player that's yeah. 25 feet away can't tell that, oh, wow, that barely missed the front of the rim.
0: Interesting, right. And it so, felt perfect. Um,
3: so that feedback, yeah, it felt great, exactly. And you would and rather also, have it bang
0: off the back of the rim and go in than be short and swish. That's interesting. Well, I'd
3: like to have a proper balance of the two. Uh, you know, what we found is the best shooters and the maximized I see.
0: Okay. You can
3: have a balance between the nothing but net shots and the back rim and down
1: I and see. Shots. Okay. Got it. I think that's a very succinct and precise summary. You want to have about an equal balance between nothing but net and hitting the back of the rim. So you almost want to be aiming at the front part of the basket. And that's because when it hits the back rim, it still goes in. And if it hits the front rim, it doesn't. And so you need to take advantage of that extra space. You actually aim at the back of the rim, which which is a long time long, well-known advice. But what this technology does is it offers you instant feedback. It tells you at what angle you shot the ball in the basket and where in the basket it landed to the right, to the left, and to what position an inch. And that immediate feedback tells you something that you can't observe on your own. When you shoot it from a distance of 25 feet, it might look like it swished. It went right in. It was perfect. But there's a far cry between just missing the front of the rim and just missing the back of the rim. And a extremely accurate shooter one who will reach their full potential is going to be aiming at the back of the rim so this is certainly a revolution and we wish john a tremendous amount of luck with his growing business and i imagine one day you'll be able to install such hardware in your own backyard and get that kind of instant feedback and even i could become a decent basketball shooter nah (laughs) that's much too unlikely well That concludes our podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under Podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 111. It's also run four times throughout the week. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics.